I hate war as only a soldier who has lived it can, only as one who has seen its brutality, its futility, its stupidity. Dwight D. Eisenhower. Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. The Radio Hour is a project of Veterans for Peace Chapter 168, Louisville, Kentucky, broadcast on Forward Radio, WFMP-LP, Louisville 106.5 FM. This program is also available on the Forward Radio website in streaming and podcast form at forwardradio.org. That's all lowercase and no spaces. Veterans for Peace is an international organization dedicated to building a culture of peace. We are military veterans, family members, and allies. We accept veteran members from all branches and all eras of service. Veterans for Peace has been exposing the true costs of war since 1985. As veterans, we work to heal the world and ourselves through our commitment to peace. That may seem like a tall order, maybe impossible, even ludicrous. But we must keep in mind that every journey begins with the first step. Please join us on our journey. Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. I am John Wilburn and will be your host. Today's program is based on the book Foreign Policy, Inc., subtitled Privatizing America's National Interest, published in 2009 and written by Lawrence Davidson, a retired professor of history at Westchester University. Most Americans, even while bound to their local space and time, assume that the nation has obvious and enduring national interest. However, the arguments made in the book lead to serious doubt about whether such a thing as national interest really exists. Most Americans do not pay attention to foreign policy issues except when they appear to impugn on their lives. This attitude is a function that, under normal circumstances, a person's consciousness is acculturated to a particular place and time. Localness is a natural default position. It is in times of high tension and crises involving foreign events that we discover our own ignorance of matters that range beyond our local environment. We then turn for information to others who, we assume, know what is going on abroad. What brings us these experts is the news media in all its forms. However, as Walter Lippmann tells us, quote, news and truth are not the same thing, unquote. One of the reasons for the divergence is that news is filtered through the minds of the journalist, the news editor, the copy editor, the producer, the pundit, and so on. And, as Richard Posner, a legal theorist, says, these, quote, experts constitute a distinct class in society with values and perspectives that differ systematically from those of ordinary people, unquote. 
Both media providers and pundits will have their own pictures in their heads influenced by their own ideologies and vested interests. Those vested interests are often shaped by their personal ideological and political affiliations as well as the media outlets that employ them. And this inevitably leads them to present biased pictures of events from afar. Consciously or unconsciously, they are in the business of stylizing the news, that is, conforming to a conventional pattern. The problem of stylization is only compounded when we realize that major media outlets, including TV stations, cable stations, radio stations, magazine publishers, and newspapers, are mostly owned by a handful of corporate giants, such as General Electric, Time Warner, Disney, and Westinghouse. All these large conglomerates are owned and operated by shareholders and executives who have a stake in establishment politics. A window into the consequences of this situation for media news can be found in the 2007 suit filed by former anchorman Dan Rather against CBS. In this suit, Rather charges that his former employer, CBS, and its parent company, Viacom, were so closely connected to the Republican administration of George W. Bush that they purposely attempted to suppress, delay, and or distort negative stories about the Iraq War and administration personnel. In this process of stylization is consistently applied to events beyond one small part of the Earth's surface across the media spectrum in over a long enough period of time, it will produce generally similar pictures in the heads of local, regional, and even national populations. What results is a thought collective. Thought collectives are artificially created, community-wide points of view that take on added strength because most people shape their opinions to conform to those of the other people around them. People want to fit into to their community, and sharing outlooks is an important aspect of this. Ultimately, thought collectives can move populations to action on the basis of firmly implanted assumptions that, in turn, are often based on stereotypes, buzzwords, and unanalyzed assertions. The ways of seeing that result from the formation of a thought collective limit domain knowledge and thus narrow the scope of critical discourse. The probable result of this is that collective ignorance will lead to something akin to Pavlovian response patterns based on media-conditioned habits of association, such as Arabs and Muslims are violent, Israelis are just like us, communism is evil, the United States stands for peace, progress, and democracy, etc. 
The thought collective usually encompasses the political leadership and societal elites as well as the ordinary citizenry. In addition, their uncritical acceptance of the American worldview leads them to protect their assumptions from dissension. In his book, Victims of Groupthink, Irving Janus shows how governing political elites create self-reinforcing decision-making circles that emphasize the same, quote, glib ideological formulas on which rational policymakers generally rely in order to maintain self-confidence and cognitive mastery over the complexities of international politics, unquote. The decision-makers who decided on the Bay of Pigs invasion in the early 1960s and led the country into the Vietnam War only a few years later shared the same unquestioned Cold War-generated attitudes about their adversaries as did the general public. In other words, national leaders are no more free of stereotype pictures of the world than are the masses, despite having available a wider range of information sources. Let us take a closer look at the behavior of the politicians, pundits, intellectuals, and government professionals who find themselves in elite positions of foreign policy leadership. They are supposedly the rational element, yet it comes as no surprise that this group of allegedly dispassionate actors will, on occasion, lie and mislead the public. They almost always do so within a thought collective paradigm that they share with the public. Manipulation of the nation's thought collective by politicians and other elite leaders has always been with us. However, beginning with the era of the Vietnam War, the level of falsehoods became striking and has often proved deadly on a large scale. Professor Eric Alterman has set out the disastrous consequences of official deception. Three things come through from his study. First, George W. Bush and his associates are presented as the most brazen manipulators to control the executive branch of government in the past 100 years. Certainly, the number of lies issued with straight faces and determined confidence by this administration must qualify for the record books. Second, the most serious lying by presidents is also the most deadly. It entails foreign policy decisions that touch on the waging of war and can result in vast numbers of dead and injured people. And third, when the media becomes an accomplice in the process of manipulation, whether knowingly or just through uncritical acceptance, damage is far greater and longer lasting. The lies become extensions of the unexamined assumptions of the pictures in people's heads and can be popularly recognized as lies only when the populace is confronted with catastrophic catastrophe sufficiently great to bring government and media assertions into open question. That a scenario like Iraq can be played out with such dire and deadly results is, in part, the consequence of a naturally incurring localism. This localism means that, when it comes to foreign policy, most people are bound by a thought collective customized by the mass media. As a result, they are potential victims of a, of a manipulated information environment. 
That environment can be designed to support policies that soon become resistant to redirection unless they fail in some catastrophic way. It is only at that point that a population can be brought to question the stereotype pictures in their heads. The problem of public ignorance and disinterest in the world abroad is compounded by the average citizen's political apathy. Just as many people are not interested in foreign affairs, many are not seriously interested in domestic political affairs either. As a consequence, the United States ranks 139th out of 172 democratic countries in voter turnout. This posture of non-participation in politics only further confirms citizens in their localism. If America is not a democracy of individuals, what sort of democracy is it? It is, in fact, a democracy of competing interest groups. This, too, is not unexpected. As the historian Nelson Polsey has observed, quote, any political system of much size or scope is likely to contain within it a population sufficiently diverse as to provoke the formation of factions, each pursuing its own interest. The United States is certainly sufficiently diverse for faction formation, so the author coins a new word to describe the American political system, factocracy, deriving from the Latin word factio or faction. How does our factocracy of competing interest groups really work? Over time, elements of the American population have found themselves motivated to political activism. They have come to an understanding of the potential for mastery inherent in the political system and have have developed ways around the problem of the powerless, atomized citizen. To do so, individuals with similar interests have learned that it is advantageous to come together and form an interest group that pools their financial resources and, if available, their voting numbers. Then, as a lobby or a faction, they use these resources to influence politicians and government officials, thus shaping legislation and policy to their liking. It is in this way that foreign policy becomes privatized. To the extent that the power of special interest influences the formulation of foreign policy, the notion that foreign policy is an expression of the national interest loses its validity. There are other factors complicating the formulation of foreign policy. For example, as the U.S. Embassy document notes, the roles and relative influence of the two branches in making foreign policy differ from time to time according to such factors as the personalities of the president and members of Congress and the degree of consensus on policy. To this, we may add the role of vocal minorities. That is the reality of a factocracy. In other words, it is often in response to powerful factions or interest groups that Congress and the president will act and react in making foreign policy. The United States had seen Central and South America as its sphere of influence ever since the declaration of the Monroe Doctrine in 1823, 
a principle of U.S. policy originated by President James Monroe that any intervention by external powers in the politics of the Americas is a potentially hostile act against the United States. The problem for President Monroe at that time was that the United States did not have the power to enforce his doctrine. But over the years, that power was developed so that in 1895, Secretary of State Richard Olney could declare, quote, the United States is practically sovereign on this continent, and its fiat is law upon the subjects to which it confines its inner position, unquote. The U.S. military has actively intervened in Central America at least 40 times since 1900. By the post-World War II era, it was clear to all that any Central American government that did not subscribe to and maintain neoliberal economic policies, that is, policies that precluded business regulation, anything but the most meager of taxation, land reform, and workers' unions, would be considered communist and overthrown. In essence, U.S. foreign policy in Central America had long ago been privatized by the economically oriented special interests that represented business, businesses. It is their parochial interest that had come to define the U.S. national interest in this part of the world. When it was occasionally pointed out that imperialist expansion and liberty were at odds, the mass media, with but few exceptions, ignored the claim, which therefore remained a distinct minority position. Some expansionists did respond to the criticism by narrowing the notion of liberty to free trade and the freedom of entrepreneurs to do as they liked. But most, like the media, simply ignored the contradictions altogether. The 20th century saw the creation of ideologically and ethically based lobbies that demonstrated equal, if not greater, power over the foreign policy formulation process. Here, we must return to the notion of a national thought collective. The reality is that, in the absence of the kind of disaster that undermines collective assumptions, most of the nation's population can be brought by government and media manipulation to see the world in certain ways. The most prominent 20th century ideological factor shaping the perceptions of Americans in terms of foreign policy has been the Cold War example of anti-communism. This example, which was, and in some cases still is, the foundation of America's thought collective on capitalist-communist relations, began to take shape almost immediately after the Russian Revolution in 1917, and its influence proved negative almost immediately. At that time, in the midst of labor unrest, its effects were manifested in red scares and the illegal arrest, due process was often suspended, of thousands and deportations of hundreds of immigrants and citizens throughout the United States. Thus, in just a few years, Americans had been brought to a consensus about the Soviet Union and the ideology it represented that was powerful enough to allow elements of the national government to override the nation's own laws. Americans were consistently told that communism represented an enemy state and an enslaving ideology that was the antithesis of our own allegedly liberating political and economic systems. 
They were also led to assume that the period of labor unrest that followed World War I and occasionally resulted in violence was the result of a left-wing communist conspiracy. Anti-communism went latent only as World War II approached and the fascist appeared to be a more immediate danger to friends of the United States. Later, when Nazi Germany attacked the Soviet Union, the communists became our unlikely allies. Then, after the war, anti-communism reappeared in its Cold War form. It was against this historical and psychological backdrop that a number of Cold War anti-communist lobbies grew up that would help bring the country into one of its most disastrous modern wars, the Vietnam War. One of these groups was the American Friends of Vietnam, or AFV, which is an example of an organized and ideologically motivated lobby claiming to represent the interests of the majority. Both American government officials and the AFV leadership worked within an anti-communist thought collective that, that upheld the necessity and legitimacy of preventing a communist government in South Vietnam. In the last half of the 1950s, this led to the unquestioned assumption that if the North Vietnamese communists were popular among some groups in the South, it was because the population was being misled or deceived. This assumption was so pervasive that, for the sake of freedom and democracy, the AFV backed the American government's refusal to allow the South's participation in the elections mandated for July 1956 by the 1954 Geneva Accords that ended French domination of Vietnam. It was claimed that the communist control of the North would not allow for a fair election there. The monitoring arrangements that had been made to assure the election's fairness were dismissed out of hand. This election, thus elections, which most obser objective observers admitted would be won by Ho Chi Minh. Why have they, as a special interest group, been led to see the world this way? Some of them have attributed their worldview to the experiences of relatives who suffered in the Holocaust. The message taken away from that experience was that evil must always be resisted with force. The neocons carried this message over to their reaction to the Soviet Union and were soon describing it as the most dangerous empire ever to have existed. It could be dealt with only through the tactics of forceful resistance and not through diplomacy. This neocon world can be interpreted as a dangerously oversimplistic. As the writer Thomas Wright has put it, what the neocons do is, quote, construct an historical narrative that exclusively associates hawkish behavior positions with success and dovish ones with failure. And it concludes, advocating one position as an ideology to inform action across all cases on the basis that it alone holds the key to success is a recipe for disaster." Unquote. The attacks on the United States that occurred on 9-11-2001 immediately opened the door to a full-fledged neocon foreign policy. As President Bush shaped the war on terror, his neocon lieutenants began to develop a plan to reorganize the Middle East 
to suit their interpretation of American interests. Making the world safe for both American interests, as defined by the Bush II administration, and democracy has turned out to be a contradictory effort. Thanks to our foreign, foreign policy orientation since the end of World War II, democracy, at least in the Middle East and Muslim world, is now likely to produce anti-American Islamic governments. But in the world of the neocons, all such complications are made to disappear. In 1962, Secretary of State Dean Rusk gave the Senate a document that listed 103 operations from the 19th and 20th centuries in which the U.S. forces invaded the territory of sovereign states. Most of these interventions were carried out to force trade concessions demanded by American business interests and then, subsequently, to protect American lives and property from protesting native elements. Thus were the results of economic-driven, economic-faction-driven foreign policy called on to justify an evolving ideological faction-driven war. Let's pause here for a station ID. When factional interests prevail, most politicians will be politically incapable of acting in a national way. When such groups are powerfully organized, well-funded, and have a staying power that maintains effectiveness for decades on end, their parochial interests end up defining national interests of foreign policy formulation. Let us now discuss two case studies of this sort. The first is privatizing national interest, the Cuba lobby. Cuba has always been presented to the American people as a great danger owing to its communist status and alliance with the Soviet Union. Occasionally, this picture even approached reality, as in the case of the Cuban Missile Price Crisis of 1962. But in the 1990s, not only were the missiles gone, but so too was the Soviet Union. About the same time, the United States began doing brisk business with the residual communist states of China and Vietnam. Yet Cuba was still presented as a threat to be isolated and undermined. How could this be so? The answer is that this obviously anachronistic stance was the product of exceptionally successful lobby power. The Cuba lobby was primarily the work of Jorge Mas Canosa. He was born in Santiago in 1939, studied law at the University of Oriente, and took a stand against Castro's turn to the left and went into exile in the United States in 1960. He joined the Bay of Pigs invasion of his homeland, joined the U.S. Army, and eventually became a successful businessman. But business was not what really drove Moscanosa. Rather, it was an abiding hatred of Fidel Castro and his government. In 1981, Moscanosa institutionalized that hatred when he founded the Cuban American National Foundation, or C-A-N-F. Moscanosa quickly became the most influential Cuban-American, and his lobby, dedicated to shaping U.S. policy toward Cuba, the second most powerful foreign policy-oriented interest group in the United States. Moscanosa and CANF took advantage of the susceptibility of the American government to lobby power. 
Little else can explain the evolution of American policy toward Cuba as the Cold War passed away. Certainly, by the end of the 1980s and the collapse of the Soviet Union, the State Department and the Pentagon understood that Cuba posed little danger to American interests and policies. As Soviet aid dried up, Cuba's direct support for revolutionary movements in Latin and Central America began to wane. Without that aid, Havana faced severe, faced severe economic problems. Its armed forces budget fell, and the number of Cubans under arms halved. The Cuban moves brought no reciprocal shift in Washington. Castro had adjusted to international realities, but Washington's reality was of quite a different nature. On the question of Cuba, its reality was and is largely domestic and political. Since Cuban refugees began arriving in the United States, a considerable Cuban-American community has grown up in this country. This constituency would become the base on which CANF rested. The economic problems in Cuba in the latter half of the 1980s only encouraged CANF and its government allies to increase pressure on the Castro regime with the hope it would soon collapse. For the CANF, only the demise of the Cuba regime would do. Any aid going to ordinary citizens of that country must be stopped. This position was successfully communicated to allies in Congress as well as to the Bush Senior White House, and as a consequence, the rapidly improving relationship between the United States and Gorbachev's Soviet Union was held hostage to Moscanova's desire to utterly wreck Castro and his regime. He and the CANF had taken a position that there should be no aid to the Soviet Union as long as it provided aid to Cuba. Moscanova appeared before the House Foreign Relations Committee in 1992, demanding that Congress close down subsidiary trade with Cuba. Soon thereafter, legislation was introduced based on a draft proposal drawn up by Moscanova to tighten the embargo. The legislation was entitled the Cuban Democracy Act, or CDA. Among other things, it forbade subsidiary trading. President Bush Sr. gave in to the demands of CANF as much as he could. However, unlike congressmen and senators, he was forced to consider a bigger picture. When the country's major trading partners, functioning as a de facto counter-lobby to CANF, drew a line in the sand and warned of retaliation if the United States tried to extend its law to cover the practices of economic entities operating on their soil. The president would back the CDA only if it were modified to give the White House some discretion over the implementation of its more draconian provisions and thus avoid a confrontation with allied trading partners. Here, it might be argued, Bush may have had something like the national interest at heart. Bush's behavior alienated CANF and its congressional allies in open space for Bill Clinton's election in 1992. After his election, Clinton felt that he had won the presidency with the help of the Cuban-American community. This translated into a sense of political obligation and dependence that made it impossible 
to respond favorably, both when Castro sent signals that he was ready to talk to the Democratic president and when moderates uh, among the Cuban-American community also approached the White House asking for a relaxation of the embargo in, no, in negotiations with Havana. Clinton was unable to respond to these overtures because the criterion determining policy on Cuba was not the national interest. That is, the national interest was not a consideration sufficient to reach a reasonable resolution of differences. The criterion for action was maintenance of the goodwill of a powerful domestic lobby that could assist the Democrats in maintaining political power. America's Cuba policy has been a dismal failure. As a consequence, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, Colin Powell's former chief of staff, has called it, quote, the dumbest policy on the face of the earth, unquote. However, it is only a failure and dumb if judged by the criteria of its publicly stated goals as a foreign policy, that is, to isolate the Castro regime and cause its collapse. If looked on in another way, as a domestic policy, it can be judged a success. In other words, if the goal of Republican and Democratic politicians is to cater to a powerful domestic lobby so as to procure its electoral and financial support, then this end has been achieved. It is to be noted that, in the successful pursuit of this domestic political goal, almost all other national interest-related foreign policy goals have been rendered irrelevant. This particular example of a privatized and dumb policy has mostly affected Cuba's economic development and thus the standard of living of its people. While U.S. foreign policy toward Cuba has had its violent side, it has not resulted in ravaged populations and open warfare. Unfortunately, in other parts of the world, particularly the Middle East, running a foreign policy that supports the parochial interests of a powerful lobby has had much more serious consequences. These do include death, destruction, war, and generally ongoing disaster for an entire region of the globe. Let us now turn to our second example of privatizing national interest, the Israel lobby. In the 1920s and 1930s, anti-Semitism was on the rise in, in the United States, largely following a similar trend throughout the Western world. How closely this phenomenon matched the racial theories springing up in Europe can be seen in an article written by President Calvin, Coo Calvin Coolidge in the early 1920s in which he asserted, quote, biological laws show us that Nordics deteriorate when mixed with other races, unquote. Working from this pseudo-scientific assumption, Coolidge signed the Johnson-Reed Immigration Reform Act of 1924, shutting down the immigration of non-Aaron groups, including Jews. It is this restrictive stand on immigration, supported by over 80% of the American people well in the 1940s, that prevented the United States from rescuing many Jews, and others as well, from Nazi persecution. All of the major Jewish organizations of the day had, at least officially, approved the harshly restrictive immigration law. 
There was, however, a Jewish group that refused to take any sort of stand against immigration restrictions. This was the American Zionist. At this time, Zionist Jews were but a minority of the overall American Jewish community. As a group, they tended to stand apart from the other Jewish groups. They were largely silent on the immigration issue because, ideologically, they were opposed to Jews coming to the United States. They insisted instead that they should go to Palestine. The Zionist Organization of America, or ZOA, was, in essence, a one-issue organization. That issue was not the interests of American Jewry, but promoting the Jewish colonization of Palestine and, after 1948, aiding Israel. Of course, all the major American Jewish organizations had supported Israel's creation and its continued existence. But unlike the ZOA, they were not wholly fixated on what was, after all, a foreign policy issue. It was not until the 1960s that this began to change. The American Zionists, whose aims did not reference the needs of domestic Jews, began to lobby both the American government and the American people themselves to support the transformation of Palestine into a Jewish homeland. They were particularly successful in the case of the U.S. Congress. Indeed, Palestine as a refuge for the Jews was very popular with American politicians in the 1930s and 1940s because it was a way of helping Jewish refugees and thus assuaging the guilt that came along with draconian immigration statutes without having to alter those statutes. After World War II, Jewish organizations took a very aggressive position when it came to discriminatory domestic laws. They made alliances and helped promote civil rights for all citizens. However, due to the position of strength that the Zionist element occupied within the Jewish community, the maintenance of an uncritical, supportive attitude on the part of both the American people and the U.S. government toward the state of Israel was at least as important. This was the situation as the year 1967 approached. The events of that year would create a contradiction between these dual ends of the Jewish organizations. In that year, they would have to choose between continuing to work toward a liberal and tolerant America and uncritical support for Israel. In early June 1967, Israel initiated a war with the pre-dawn attack on Egypt. Within six days, they had defeated the armies of Egypt, Syria, and Jordan and occupied the West Bank, Gaza, and the Golan Heights. The rapid victory of Israel did not leave American Jews with a greater sense of security. The Jewish consensus flowed not from present reality, which the experts knew was characterized by Israeli strength and Arab weakness, but from historically conditioned feelings of vulnerability. According to Jewish leader Milton Himmelfarb, from the June 1967 events, Jews had, quote, relearned the old truth that you can depend only on yourself, unquote. The Israeli victory was not all positive. It gave Israel control of conquered territory 
that it almost immediately started to colonize in violation of international law. More than a million native Palestinians found themselves under an increasingly oppressive regime of occupation. Israel was taken to task on human rights issues by the United Nations, and other nations started to criticize Israeli policies in the newly occupied territories as resembling the behavior of apartheid South Africa. Some of this criticism came from civil rights and anti-war groups in the United States with whom the American Jewish organizations had long-standing alliances. This proved to be the pivotal moment. Would the American Jewish leaders and their activists stay true to their liberal principles of tolerance and equality for all, including the Palestinians under Israeli occupation, or would they retreat into a fortress mentality that interpreted all criticism of Israel as anti-Semitism and proof that the Jews could depend only on themselves? The answer turned out to be the latter. From this time on, the major goal of American Jewish organizations and lobbies was to serve the interests of Israel. In the United States, the organization that now came to the fore in this role was the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, or APAC. What was important in the long run for the growth and influence of APAC and the Zionist lobby was that Jewish Americans became important donors to the political parties, particularly the Democrats. This gave their lobbying arms the necessary leverage to eventually convince the U.S. government to become Israel's principal financial and military supporter. No country in the Middle East has made the region more dangerous and difficult for American interests than Israel. Here's why. First, the immense influence and obstructionist tactics of organizations and lobbyists whose first loyalty is to Israel have made it nearly impossible for the United States to respond to Israeli behavior that undermines a stable and pro-American environment in that region. Second, almost every peace initiative offered by U.S. administrations over the past 40 years has been actively or passively rejected by Israel. Yet the Congress and the executive branch have repeatedly been unable to adequately respond and discipline Israel because of the power of the Israel lobby. Third, the lobby also sees to it that Israel drains resources from the U.S. Treasury to fund activities that are not, that are not only against U.S. interest because they stir up hatred against America, but in violation of international laws, for example, settlement activities and the building of the misnamed security wall. Fourth, the United States has repeatedly been induced by lobby power to diplomatically protect Israel from United Nations condemnation through the use of its Security Council veto. In doing so, it once more publicly ties itself to Israeli policies and thereby declares its complicity in that country's often illegal and violent behavior. Fifth, Israel has repeatedly ignored the limitations placed by law on the use of the military equipment given to it by the United States. Because of the power of the Israeli lobby, Israel suffers no consequences for such violations, but American interests are harmed irreparably. Arguably, the attack of September 11, 2001 is, to date, 
the most profound proof that support of Israel has brought nothing but disaster for U.S. interests. Yet, owing to the inordinate power of this particular special interest faction, policies and in direct contravention of American national interests in the Middle East continue to be pursued. To conclude our discussion today, I'll share the observations of London School of Economics Professor Peter Trubowitz, who states, quote, the very definition of national interest is a product of politics. For all practical purposes, the United States does not have a unique national interest, unquote. He may very well be correct. However, he goes on to reduce the politics that define and redefine national interest to economics. Quote, in its strongest form, the imperatives of American capitalism drive American foreign policy. As the needs of capital change, so eventually does the nation's foreign policy. Unquote. In other words, for Trubowitz, the specialist interest or lobby factor is but a reflection of political rivalry and conflict among capitalists. Certainly, Trubowitz's work undermines the notion so glibly put forth by politicians, pundits, and the media that national interest is a unitary and unchanging notion. However, economic interest groups are only a part of the array of lobbies that have successfully privatized the U.S. national interest. You have been listening to Veterans for Peace Radio Hour here on Forward Radio WFMP LP 106.5 FM Louisville, Kentucky. We have enjoyed our time with you today and look forward to having you back sometime soon. Please join us on the path to peace and nonviolence. We can imagine a world without war. And no matter what the journey is, it will always begin with the first step. For more information, please go to veteransforpeace168.org or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening.